Anyway, hey, uh, we started a new message series a couple of weeks ago on the book of Colossians called Above All Else. And this series is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ and what happens when we live our lives with him at the head. And, you know, last week we had to cancel due to all the snow, which is just hilarious because today the high is 70. You got to love Colorado weather. But last, last week, literally, where some, some of our people lived, uh, they got over a foot of snow, and I was like, you know, we're going to have like 10 people here if we don't cancel. So we went ahead and canceled. By the way, if we ever have to do that, that you, you find out how we announce that. It's through text. It's on social media. We, we let you know the best way that we can. Um, but we missed last week due to the snow, but uh, we kicked things off two weeks ago in this series uh, looking at Colossians chapter 1, and I gave you six powerful realities that we get to experience when we place Christ above all else in our lives, when we make him number one. And if you miss that message, I just want to encourage you to go online this week, go on our YouTube channel, go to our Life Chapel podcast, check that message out. It was a powerful day that we had in the presence of God. But today, what I want to do is I actually want to continue in Colossians chapter one, and I want to break down a portion of scripture that some theologians have called the most extensive writing in all the New Testament on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I want you to look at this with me uh, in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Let's look at this together. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Today, I want to highlight three big ideas about Jesus, the Son of God, from this passage that we just read, and I want to tell you why it matters for you and me. But let's pray first, and let's ask God to speak to us through his word today. Father, we are so grateful for your presence that's in this room right now. Lord, we are grateful to be in your house. We're grateful to be considered sons and daughters of God. Lord, we're grateful for the goodness, for the mercies, Lord, for the, for the things that you've bestowed on us, God, this week and throughout our lives that we don't deserve, Lord. You're a God of grace and mercy. And I pray today, Lord, that as we, as we minister the word, Father, I pray that you would minister to your people today. God, speak your word with clarity. Speak it clearly, God. Speak it in power, Lord, so that it can change us from the inside out. And we give you praise and thanks, Lord, for what you're going to do Here today, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I told you last time we were together that the purpose of Paul writing this letter to the church was really twofold. One, it was because this is a new uh, church, and uh, it was very young, and it was just getting started out. It was started in the city of Colossae by one of Paul's associates, and Paul was trying to help them learn how to grow in their faith and grow in their walk with God. And he did that in two ways. One, he pointed out some things they were doing well. He gave them some encouragement and said, hey, keep doing this. You're doing this really well. The other thing he did is he gave them some things to work on, some things to look out for and be watchful in. And I, you know, I think that's true for all of us. We all need that. And that's what the word of God is for. None of us are have got it all figured out, right? None of us have arrived when it comes to our walk with God. And when we look into the word of God, we can receive encouragement because we see things that we're doing well. And we see things that God highlights and says, man, I'm going to encourage you because you're doing this well. But we also think, see things in the word of God that we know we need to work on. And he shows us things that we need to be aware of and watch out for. And that's the reason that Paul originally wrote the letter But then secondly, he also wrote the letter, Bible scholars believe, because there was some heresy and some false teaching that had infiltrated this particular church. And this false teaching that was happening was causing confusion among some of the believers there, and it was causing them 
to start to be swayed away from the true gospel and towards a false gospel. And so Paul wrote this letter to deal with the false teachers directly. Now, how many in here know that God is not the author of confusion? And disorder and chaos and confusion, listen, when you see those things, they do not come from God. They are tactics of the enemy. And so what the enemy will do, what the devil will do is he'll try to introduce confusion into your walk with God. Why does he do that? It's in an effort to get you off the path of God's will for your life and onto the path that he's got set up for you. And so confusion is a tactic from the enemy and it shows up from time to time. And in this letter, I think Paul helps us understand how to deal with confusion when it shows up in our life because this is what Paul did. He spoke to the confusion directly with the word of God and he brought clarity to it. See, sometimes we've got to speak the word of the Lord to the confusion, and the word of the Lord always brings clarity. It's just like Jesus when he was on the boat with his disciples. You remember that story, uh, that, that story and a storm came up on the sea, and Jesus stood up, and he spoke to the winds and the wave, and he said, peace, be still. He spoke the word of the Lord from his own mouth to that storm, and the Bible says that the winds and the waves had to obey him. Speaking the word of God, it brings clarity to the chaos. It brings order to confusion, and that's why Paul wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to the church to address the things that were causing confusion in and among them and to encourage them to stay on the path of the true gospel that they had received when they first came to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to get more in depth. I want you to know uh, about what the, the confusion was and the false teaching and all of that later on in the series because Paul deals with it throughout the letter. But let me just say this briefly. The false teaching that they were dealing with that was bringing confusion was primarily centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Basically, there were some who believed that Jesus was not God. They believed that Jesus was a created being. He was just like one of the angels. And they believed that because he was kind of like God and, and, and was supernatural in some way, he could do some really cool things while he was here on the earth, but he was not God. And so he should not be worshiped as God. And I think it's with this false teaching in mind that Paul wrote the passage that we just read here in Colossians chapter 1. He wrote this portion of scripture because he thought it best to confront the confusion head on by offering a crystal clear picture of who Christ Jesus is and what he has done for us as the Son of God. And in this passage, Paul tells us three truths about the Lord Jesus Christ that refutes the false gospel and refutes the false teachers. And here's the first one. Paul reveals that Jesus is Lord over all creation. Jesus is Lord over all creation. I want you to look back at verse 15 with me. We're just going to walk through this. I'm going to break it down for you. This is what Paul writes of Jesus in verse 15. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. God, for all intents and purposes, is invisible. He himself is hidden from humanity. John chapter 1, verse 18 says this. It says, no one has ever seen God. Let me ask you today, have you ever seen God with your physical eyes? I haven't. Have you ever met anybody that made that claim? I saw God with my eyes. I woke up one morning and he was standing in my room with a cup of coffee. Hallelujah. No, I, I've never met anybody. In fact, I would challenge you. You read throughout the scriptures. You read all of the Bible. You will never find one passage in the Bible where it says a person saw the Lord face to face on this side of heaven outside of a vision or a dream. What is that? God has intentionally made himself hidden to humanity. And have you ever thought about why that is? I think it's based on what I've read in the books of Exodus, Isaiah, Acts, and Revelation. I believe that if God were to reveal himself to humanity in all of his glory, we would simply not be able to handle the sight of him. We would probably fall down dead. Moses could only handle a glimpse of the backside of the Lord as he passed by, and that alone caused his face to glow for weeks. Paul saw a heavenly vision of him, and it blinded him for days. Isaiah and John both had a vision of the Lord, and they fell flat on their face and thought they were dead in that moment, just from seeing a vision 
of God. Why is that? What's going on there? Well, it's that God is robed in so much glory and so much splendor and so much majesty that our finite minds can't even begin to comprehend him. He is beyond our existence. He is beyond our full understanding. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 says, it's because of the mercy of the Lord that we are not consumed. And I believe it is an act of the mercy of God towards us that he hides himself in all of his glory from us. Because if we ever saw him on this side of heaven, I believe we would be consumed by him. So no human on earth has ever seen the invisible God. Yet look at John 1.18 again. It goes on to say, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God. God is and is in closest relationship with the father and has made him known. And the implication is to us. One of the distinct purposes of Jesus coming to the earth was to reveal the God who cannot be seen to a people who were seeking to know him and see him. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How is that possible? How can he reveal something that is invisible and cannot be seen? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it is because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And his coming to the earth gave visibility to what had previously been unknown and unknown unseen by humankind. The Greek word for image here is where we get the English word icon. And it's got two meanings built into that word. The first meaning in the Greek is that it is an exact replica of. This is what I want you to know. Jesus is the exact representation of the invisible God. Now listen, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. We are going into the deep end today. Okay, so if you need floaties, go ahead and put them on. But we're jumping off the diving board and we're going deep today. He is the image of the invisible God. That means that he is the exact representation of the God that you cannot see. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen my father. It's because he's an exact replica, an exact representation of God the Father in heaven. So listen to me. Jesus was not just like God or just similar to God. He is God. So the image that he portrayed when he was here on the earth walking among us was an exact replica, an exact representation of the God of heaven. And, you know, you, you, may, you may see two things that resemble one another from time to time on some level Uh, But that doesn't necessarily mean they are connected in any way or a part of one another. For example, you might say, your car is like my car. Now, you're not saying your car is my car. Your car is the same as my car. You're just saying there are similarities here between your car and my car. If, If it's my wife's car, you know, they both got dents in the back and dents in the front and this door doesn't work and all of that. But you say, your car is like my car. And, 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 and what you're saying is it's like it, but it's not the same thing. And what, what happened here in the, in the city of Colossae and in the church is that some of these false teachers, they wanted the people to believe that about Jesus. They taught that Jesus was like God, but, but not really all that much. That he had some divine qualities making him like God on some level, but he himself could not have been God. And they have their reasons for that. It's called Gnosticism, and it was all broken down. And again, we're going to get into that later on in the series. But listen, there is another Greek word that Paul could have used here in Colossians 1 if he wanted us to believe that Jesus was just similar to God or that he had some God-like qualities but was not an exact representation. But the word that Paul uses here for image in verse 15, he used on purpose because he wants us to know that Jesus doesn't just share similarities with God the Father. He's not just an angel. He's not just another prophet with some kind of spiritual power. He was not just some kind of supernatural emanation that came down from heaven somehow. He is the exact representation of who God is because he himself is God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Let me take you back to John chapter 1 for just a moment. Look at verse 14. This is, this is what the scripture declares about Jesus, the Son of God, in John 1.14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. That word for seen there in the Greek means to behold with a long gaze. 
So this was not a passing glance like what Moses got in Exodus. This is a long look at the Lord. The scripture says in Isaiah, as it was foretelling the coming of the Messiah, it says that they, they is the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, they will look upon the one they have pierced and they will mourn and they will weep. And see, that's what humanity did when Jesus came. They looked on him, they saw him, and either they wept over what they did to him or they rejoiced in the glory that came to earth from him. Because John goes on, he says, when they saw him, the son of glory, the glory that they saw was the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Paul wants you to know that Jesus is the exact representation of the invisible God. If you've seen him, you've seen the father, but that's not all. Because the Greek word for image has another meaning built into the word as well. And it's, it's that Jesus is the exact representation, but it's also that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of the invisible God. So this is what Paul is saying. Jesus came not only to show you who God is, but he also sh- came to show you what God is like and what God can do. He came to bring the manifestation of the presence and power of God down to the earth. He came to usher in God's kingdom here. It's a heavenly kingdom. It's a supernatural kingdom. It's not of this world. And that's why John said of him in John chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one who came from the Father. He's saying we saw him. We saw his glory, but that's not all. They also experienced him. That's why they could say, we found out that he was full of grace and truth. See, Jesus is the manifestation. What that word means is the unfolding. He is the unfolding of everything that is in God's heart for humanity. He is full of grace and truth for you. In John chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible says, from from his abundance, we have all received Grace on top of grace, or one gracious blessing after another. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Jesus entered the atmosphere of the earth, and when he did, the heart and nature of God towards his creation began to manifest all around so that everywhere Jesus went, people experienced the power of the invisible God. They experienced truth. They experienced love. They experienced mercy. They experienced grace. The resurrected Lord began to give them an experience that was heavenly, a heavenly manifestation. That's why there was healing. That's why there was salvation. That's why there was deliverance. That's why there was even resurrection. The things of earth had to give way to and bow down to the manifest reality of heaven. Why? Because the king of glory, the one who came from the father, came down to the earth. And when he did, he began to show us a perfect manifestation of who God is on the earth. Amen? Jesus came doing the works of God the Father. He said by his, own, by his own testimony. He did that because the works themselves testify to the truth of who he is. I want you to look at this in John chapter 14, verse 11. This is what Jesus said. He said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Let me ask you here today, church, has anybody experienced the works of God in your life? Does anybody have evidence of who God is and what God can do? Is there anybody here today that would just raise your hand and say, I know because I've been healed? Hallelujah. Anybody raise your hand and say, I know what it's like to know God because I've been saved? Anybody raise your hand and say, I've been delivered? He pulled me out of the pit and he put my feet on a rock? Hallelujah. Anybody seen the delivering power of God? Has anybody experienced a miracle? Oh, come on. This morning, I I was reminded about last Easter when a young lady, came to church and she sat on that second row and she didn't know what was about to happen in her life. Uh, She she came to church and she cried through the whole service. She said, I don't know why I'm crying. And I said, I do. It's the presence of God. Well, later that week, she had a medical episode. Her heart quit beating. The ambulance came to her house. She was dead on the spot. They brought her back just long enough to get her into the ambulance and get her to the hospital, but she couldn't breathe on her own. Her heart wouldn't beat on its own. She was non-responsive. And I had just met her the Sunday before all this happened. It all happened on Good Friday. And they called me and they said, 
this young lady, she came to your church on Sunday, and now she's going through this. And I said, I'm going to be there. I'm going to come and see her. And on Saturday morning, hallelujah, I walked into her hospital room, and I looked at her crying mama, and I said, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me, but I want to tell you something. I believe in the power of the Word of God. And I said, I'm going to lay my hands on your daughter, and I believe God is going to raise her up. And I walked over to her, not able to breathe without a machine, not able to have her heartbeat without a machine, completely non-responsive. And I told her to wake up in the name of Jesus, and I saw her body begin to move. Hallelujah. I saw her head begin to shake and her hands begin to respond. And the next day, hallelujah, they took her off the machines because she was awake and God had... God had worked a miracle. Come on, somebody, and help me praise God because he can do what he said he can do. Hallelujah. There is nothing too difficult for God. We are a people who have seen the evidence of the works of God. And Jesus said, if you don't want to believe my words, then just believe what you see all around you. A people that were far from God that have been brought near. A people that were lost that have been saved. A people that were broken that have been healed. A people that were in deep trouble that received the miracle working power of God. Paul's making the case that Jesus is Lord over all creation. And he starts right there by just talking about the image, the exact replica, and the perfect manifestation of the invisible God. And then he goes on in verse 15 and he adds these words. He is the firstborn over all creation. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that Jesus, the son of God, watch this. I'm telling you, this is going to blow your mind. He was before all creation and he's over all creation. You know, Jesus has a birthday in the flesh. We call it Christmas. By the way, I want to know where my people are. Who's already started? Come on. Yes. You know, you know, we decorate, we play music. Come on, November 1st is a perfect time to get started. Some of y'all started before that, and I don't blame you. Jesus, <laughs> pray for me, brother. Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. That's absolute fact it happened. All of that is true. We celebrated, and we absolutely should. But I want you to know today that is not really his birthday. It's not his birthday because while that was the day he showed up on the earth wrapped up in flesh, the reality is his eternal existence has no beginning. It has no point of entry because he always was and forever has been. He is the eternal son of the living God. He existed before all created things because he himself is an uncreated one. And since he is uncreated, he must be eternal and since he is eternal, he must be God. And since he is God, his claims about himself and his claims about his Father and his claims about the Holy Spirit must be true. Paul says of Jesus, he's not a part of the created order like you and me. He's over all of it. And now look where Paul goes next. Because not only is Jesus the Son of God, the image of the invisible God in heaven, and not only is he uncreated and over all creation, but he himself is the agent of all things that have been created. Look at it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. You guys are going to have a PhD in theology when we get done today. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones of powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Lord over all creation because, according to Paul, listen, nothing has been created that was done so without him. Creative power is the byproduct of his essential essence and essential nature. nature. The creation of anything is impossible without him being present and overseeing that process. By the way, Paul was not the only writer in the New Testament that gave us this revelation about God because it also came from John, the disciple, one of Jesus' disciples. This is what he said at the outset of his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, he identifies who the Word is later in chapter 1. He says, it's the Son. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. Watch this. He was with God in the beginning. Now, verse 3. 
Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him, and in him alone, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Listen to me. There is no life without Jesus, the Son of God, breathing life into it and creating it. He is Lord over it all because he created it all. It's all been made by him and for him. So let's, let's, let's stop right here for just a second. And talk about the enemy of our souls. Because many people believe in error that Jesus and the devil are somehow on, in some kind of equal footing on opposite sides of a spectrum. That they've got the same kind of power. That they're equal in power. And see, that was another part of the heresy that was going on in the Colossian church. And I don't have time to dig all that out today. We're going to get to it. But Paul settles that for us here, and he tells us it's not even close. Listen to me. The enemy of your soul cannot create anything. It is bad theology for you to think otherwise. Nowhere in the Scripture can you read about how the devil created anything. This is what he does. He perverts what has already been created, and then he presents a counterfeit to the real thing. Through deception and fine-sounding arguments, the Scripture says, he makes you and I Believe the lie that taking his counterfeit will somehow be just as good or better for us than taking the real thing. Listen to me. It's like drinking a Pepsi instead of a Coke. Come on, y'all. There ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Nothing. You need to know that the enemy cannot create anything. The only thing he can do is distort and pervert what God has already created through the Son. And he wants you to believe his counterfeit, listen, will bring you greater joy than what you read about in the Scripture. But it is a false joy. It is not real, it is not lasting, and it does not have the ability to fulfill you in any way, shape, or form. The Bible says that it's in the presence of the Lord where we are overwhelmed with joy. It says that in him are pleasures forevermore. It says of his joy that it is a river welling up from within us. And so the enemy wants you to believe in this counterfeit. The devil will put you on a path of peace. But listen to me, it is a false peace because the word of God says that Jesus is he himself is our peace. It calls him the prince of peace. And any peace you try to find apart from relationship with God, I'm telling you, is a false peace. And you really won't have it in your heart. He gives us a false sense of hope. But in the end, the hope he offers leaves us feeling even more hopeless. It's because it's counterfeit. It isn't real. But the word of God says those who put their hope in the Lord will never be put to shame. He talks you into pursuing a counterfeit happiness. Listen to me. It's not real. But there is real and lasting happiness today for those whose hope is found in the Lord. The scripture says, happy is the one whose God is the Lord. In Psalms chapter 34, verse 8, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you've had a taste of the real thing, a counterfeit just won't do. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy and anything he's offering up to you. Listen, that is his goal in the end. It is to steal, kill, and destroy. And I believe it's time for us as the people of God to wake up and quit chasing after the things of this world and the things they're putting in front of us and understand that we've got everything we need in relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. He's over all of it. He's over all creation. Paul says everything that has been created was created by him, through him, and for him. There is nothing that has been created in the heavens above or the earth below that was done so without his intent, his consent, and without his creative power. And on top of that, there is nothing that has been created that does not serve his divine purpose. He is over all things because all things were created by him. Scripture says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So let's talk about a theological dilemma real quick that this presents, okay? Why do we see evil in our world today? What's that about? Where does evil come from? If, if God has created everything, then why do we see evil in our world? Why is there sin? Why is there sickness and disease? Why is there pain and suffering? Did God create that too if he created everything? Here's the answer. No, he did not. Those things are the results of living in a fallen world. 
The Bible says when God created the heavens and the earth that he stepped back and he said one, he said one thing. He said, it is good. And what that tells me is that God has never created anything that he couldn't look at and say, it is good. That is good. Everything he created was created to be good. And there, if there's anything you see in the world around you that is not good and is not producing something that is good, it's not because God created it to be evil. It's because sin got involved with it, perverted it, and turned what God created to be good into something that is evil. So what about that? Let's go there. Does sin and evil rule the day? Do they rule on the earth because it was able to contaminate what God created to be good? That's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked it because it gives me an opportunity to tell you the other primary reason that the Son of God left the throne of heaven above to come down to the earth because he left heaven to come here not only to reveal the invisible God to a humanity that was in desperate need to know him, but he also came to redeem the same humanity and all of creation from the curse of sin and death and in so doing to reconcile us back to God the Father, back to where we belong. He came to make things right again. Look what the scripture says in Romans chapter 8 verse 20. It says, for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. I'm telling you that what Jesus Christ has done for us through his death and resurrection is glorious. He has redeemed all things. He has made all things new, the Bible says. That includes you and me. We who were once lost and hopeless, stuck in our sin, condemned by our past, held in its bondage. How did we get out of it? There's only one way to get out of the curse of sin and death, and it is through the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to know today that it is Jesus that has set us free because he is the redeemer of all things. Why don't you just take a minute and give God praise if you know you've been set free today. Amen. I'm not who I used to be because of Jesus. Paul said in verse 16 that all things were made through him and it's not just through him. It's also for him. I love that. That verse is so profound. Did you realize that that verse right there, it answers the two most essential questions in all of humanity? Why am I here? Where did I come from? And why am I here? The answer to those questions is found in this one verse. You were created by him. That's where you came from. You were created by God. You have a creator. You have a beginning point. You have someone who formed you in your mother's womb. You have a DNA that was, that, was, that was formed for you. That's where you come from. And secondly, why are you here? You were created for him. That's why you're here. You are here to serve the purposes of God on the earth. The answer to life's biggest mystery is found right here in Colossians chapter 1. Made by him, made for him. That's why we say you will never understand your purpose on this earth apart from knowing your creator. Because your purpose, your very existence is inextricably tied to a relationship with the Son of God. So let me ask you today before we move on, what purpose have you been pursuing with your life? Is it the purpose of God who created all things, including you? Or is it the purpose of the enemy who has perverted, distorted, and manipulated what God created and declared to be good? What purpose have you been pursuing with your life? I want you to look at what, Rome, what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He said, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. Listen to me. You don't have to worry about how things are going in your life when you are living in his love and you are living in his purpose. We get into trouble when we start to find a purpose somewhere out there apart from God. But in right relationship with him, in right knowledge of who he is in our lives, we really 
realize, listen, that he's already got it all mapped out. He's got it all figured out. As Paul said in verse 17, he's holding it all together. On our own, we easily fall apart because we were not created to live that way. But in him and him in us, he keeps us all together. He holds us together through it all. No matter what life throws our way, we're going to be okay because the God of the universe is holding us in his hands. Look at verse 17. I don't want you to miss that. In him, all things hold together. What an encouraging word for our lives today. You know, we can talk about what's going on in the world right now. I know there's upheaval. There's all kinds of craziness happening. They're, they're, they're in the streets, and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff all over the world. You know about the war going on in Gaza and down in Israel. You know about it going up in Ukraine with Russia. L- listen to me. No matter what's going on in the world on the big scale or on the small scale in your own life, I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is over it all, and you and I don't have to live in fear over what could happen. Let me tell you, Jesus is not up in heaven right now wringing his hands, worried and in fear about what's going on down here. It might feel like it's all about to fall apart to us. It might feel like it's getting out of control and drifting into chaos. But let me tell you something. He is over all things. In him, all things are held together, and he has not abdicated his throne up in heaven. He hasn't handed it to Hamas or anybody else. He is still seated on his throne. He is still holding it all together. Amen. Everything you see happening in the world, listen to me, it serves a divine purpose. It has redemptive qualities, and it will be for our good. Nothing that happens down here can threaten his sovereignty up there. Amen. I love this. He is alpha. He's our beginning point, and he's omega, our ending point. But watch this. He's everything in between. He is holding Every moment of our lives, he's holding you together, no matter what comes your way. Paul wrote this passage to confront the confusion in the early church by giving a crystal clear picture of who Jesus Christ really is. He's Lord over all creation, but that's not all. Paul also wants you to know that he's head of the church. He's head of the church. Look at Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. Listen to me. Jesus is the head of his church. I've heard people say over the years, because I'm the pastor of this church, they'll say things like, well, it's your church. You know, well, you're in charge. You can do what you want. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's all up to you, man. You started it. It's your church. And, and I just want to be very clear. I want to go on the record today. That is not true. It's not my church. It's his church. And he is the one who sets our mission. He is the one who sets our agenda. He is the one that is leading and guiding this thing. It is his mission we're on, not our own mission, because he is the head of his church. So what happens when man gets in the way with our own ideas and what we think the church should be? What happens when we start pushing our own agenda or start following our own mission for our lives and for our church? Well, that's easy. When we do that, we cease to be the church of Jesus Christ. Christ. What we do is we create a church with our own name on it. And the sad truth is there's a lot of churches in America today that are operating just like that. They have recreated church in their own image. They have taken things out of the word of God that they don't like and they put things in there that they think should be. They've set a new mission, a new course for the direction of the church because they don't like the mission Jesus gave them to seek and save the lost and make disciples of all nations. They've taken the place of headship over the church. They've replaced Christ as the head. And as a result, they cease to be the real true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we don't get to reinvent the purpose and the mission of the church. It is his church. It is is his agenda. He is in charge. He is the head. He is in control. And let me tell you something. He knows what he's doing. Amen. And it's important that we as a church function with the proper order, with him at the head leading the way. With no head, you get a dead church. With two heads, you get a deformed church. With the wrong head, you get a destructive church. 
But with Jesus at the head, you get a divine church because you get a church that is doing the will of God the Father on the earth. And Jesus said about his church, he said, I will build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. It's his church. I love the way Jesus spelled that out in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Look at it. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I, it is Christ's concern, will, it is Christ's purpose, build, it is Christ's work, my, it is Christ's possession, church, it is Christ's body. It is all about him. It is all for him. He is the head, and we get to be a part of it. But listen, don't ever become so arrogant or so delusional that you try and exalt yourself and get in the way of what God is doing on the earth through his church. See, when we keep him in his seat as the head, something amazing happens. Because when he's at the head and we stay connected to the head, everything that we need is flowing down to the body. His power, his provision, his blessing, it's all coming down to the whole body. It's it's touching every single one of us as long as we stay connected to it, as long as we stay connected to the vine or stay connected to the head. And that's what makes the church effective on the earth. If a church ever ceases to be effective, it's because we've disconnected from our head. We can't function without our head. You get it. I was going to, you know, give you some kind of illustration, but that's unnecessary. I love what Paul adds in Colossians chapter 118. Listen to this. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Man, I love that. Paul says that he is the firstborn from among the dead. Let's talk about that for just a moment because that makes me happy. Jesus died on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead. That is the gospel. And if you're a child of God today, if you've been saved, it's because you believe that. And that's all true. But that's not where the story stops. That's where the story actually just gets to the beginning for you and me. Because Jesus did not rise up from the dead, ascend up to the Father, disappear from our sight. End of story. Good luck to you. Hope it works out for you in the end. Jesus did something that unlocked something else for all of us. And he said in John chapter 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life and the one who believes in me. Me will live even though they die. And in Revelation chapter 118, this is what Jesus said. He said, I am the living one. I was dead, but now look at me. Look at me again. Hallelujah. I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys, hallelujah, of death and Hades. Let me show you what Paul was saying here in Colossians chapter 1 and why it makes me so happy. Paul said here that he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That means he is the first one to come up out of the grave and stay out of the grave. He raised other people from the dead, but they had to die again. Jesus came out of the grave and he didn't go back into the grave. He stayed out. He's the first one, but he's not the only one. Because in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the scripture says of Jesus, watch this, that he is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What does that mean? It means that he was the first one to come up out of that grave, but he's not going to be the last because he's got a whole bunch of adopted brothers and sisters who are called the church, who are following after him as well. Come on, somebody, and give God praise for that. Scripture says that he is leading a joyful procession, hallelujah, from death to the place of life. And all of us who make up this body with him at the head, we are all following in his lead. And if the head came up out of the ground, the rest of the body is coming out too. That's why when he called the first disciples, he simply said, follow me. Because if we follow him in life, we're going to follow him in death. And if we follow him in death, our death is going to be like his death, meaning it's only going to be temporary. But if we die in Christ Jesus, then even the sting of death is swallowed up in victory. Because if we follow him in death, we're going to follow him in resurrection. Come on, one more time. Somebody give God praise. 
I want to give you some scripture quickly to back that up. Romans chapter 8, verse 10, one of the most powerful passages of scripture in all the Bible. It says, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit that gives life because of righteousness, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead, hallelujah, will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Watch this. The sun came down from heaven to reveal the reality of the invisible God to all creation, but he also came to reveal the eternal destiny of all the sons and daughters of God. He came down to show us the way up. Amen. And if I go down, I'm coming back up. If, I, if they knock me down, I'm getting back up. How do you know that? It's because the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living in me. So, if I go down to the grave, I'm not going to stay in that place. I'm going to get back up. Come on, somebody. We used to sing a song. Hallelujah. I feel like preaching this morning. My goodness. We used to sing a song when I was a kid in Savannah, Georgia called Ain't No Grave. Anybody ever heard that one? I'm not going to sing it for you. Don't worry. But I am going to roll up my sleeves because it is hot in this church. And if I had a ham and organ... I'd be shouting right now. You don't even know. But there ain't no grave that's going to hold my body down. It can't. It doesn't matter where you put me. It doesn't matter if you put me in a tomb like they did Jesus and roll a stone in front of it. It doesn't matter if they put me six feet down into the dirt. It doesn't matter if they cremate me and put me in an urn. Hallelujah. When he calls my name, I'm coming out. Come on, somebody. Give God praise. Hallelujah. His resurrection was the beginning. He is the firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? We're all coming out. Hallelujah. We're all coming out. Hallelujah. He is the firstborn. If he overcame death, we're overcoming death as well. Hallelujah. Let me just encourage you. When we close our eyes in this life, we open our eyes in the next. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what the scripture says. It says, and so shall we forever be with the Lord. We've got an eternity to look forward to because of what Jesus has done for us. Paul is writing to clear up the confusion about who Jesus is, and I'm going to hurry, trust me. In Colossians chapter 1, he told us that he's the Lord over all creation. He's the head of the church. And lastly, Paul tells us he wants to be king of our hearts as well. He wants to be the king of my heart. Think about this. The king of the universe wants to be the king of my heart. Just let that sink in for a minute. Behold, what manner of love is this? <laughs> that we should be called sons and daughters of God. What right do we have to be called sons and daughters of God? Jesus wants to be king of our hearts. But I want you to understand something today. Just because he created everything and is over everything, that does not mean he forces himself on us. We've been created with something called free will, and our free will allows us to make a choice over who will be our God, who we will serve, and how we will live our lives. And what the Word of God asks us to do is to make a choice when it comes to who is going to sit on the throne of our hearts. Are we going to sit there? Are we going to put the enemy of our souls there, or are we going to put God on the throne? This is where Paul goes next. Look at it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I don't have time to dig all this out today. We're going to get into it. This fullness idea is a major theme throughout the book of Colossians. But I just need you to know this, that that wording there is so intentional, fullness dwelling in him. That means that the full revelation of who God is, his power, his nature, his divine qualities, his holiness, all of that, that fullness has found a dwelling place, or better yet, if you look at it in the Greek, it, is, it has found a home. The fullness of God was at home. Where? In the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the implication for you and me, and this is why I bring it out. It's because through relationship with Jesus, watch this, his fullness can make a home in your heart as well if you will allow it to. What does that mean? It means that the fullness that comes from knowing God is available to you. It's found in Christ alone. There is no other pathway to get to God or to, or to experience the things of God. Today, you have everything you need in 
Jesus in him, you have been brought to fullness. Nothing is missing in you. Nothing is broken in you if Jesus is sitting on the throne in your heart. Paul goes on in verse 20. He says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now listen to me. You and I, we're part of the all things that Paul mentions here. Christ came down to reconcile all things that were lost and bring them back to the place where they belong. And this is how he does it. Paul tells us he does it by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Greek word there to make peace means to bind together. It means to take two things that were separated and make them inseparable. That's what the blood of Jesus has done for you and me. It made us who were far from God our Father suddenly inseparable from him. That is amazing. That's what the blood of Jesus did on the cross. Paul gets deeper into it in the next verse. Look at it in verse 21. I'm rushing through this. But once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. Watch this. Again, it's not because that's what you were created to be. God did not create you to be an enemy of God. Why did that happen? Why, did, why were you alienated? Why were you separated? Why were you an enemy? Well, Paul tells us it's because of your own evil behavior, your own poor choices. Look at verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. When we were alienated from God, we were separated from him by our own sin, by our own poor choices. God loved us too much to leave us in that woeful condition. So he did something about it. He sent his son to bring us back from the place of death to the place of life, from the place of brokenness to the place of fullness, from the place of chaos and disorder to the place of peace. Listen to me. Peace comes in our hearts when our hearts come to God. And if you're here today and you're living in chaos and confusion or in any kind of disorder in your life, you need to know today that that's not what God had in mind when he created you. He created you to live in peace. He created you to live inseparable from him and his love. He created you to be reconciled to God. He created you to be free from accusation from the enemy. He created you to be cleansed and healed and whole. That is God's design for you. Jesus came to make that possible. The king of the universe wants to be the king in your heart, but it's up to you. I want the band to come up and begin to play softly, and I just want you to see this quickly before we close. Look at verse 23, because Paul tells us what we need to do in order to have Jesus come in and be the king of our hearts. Look at verse 23. He says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm. Let me say this real quick, because again, it's, it's a heresy for you to believe that once you're saved, no matter what you do, no matter how you live your life, you're good. You're going to heaven. What did Paul say? If you continue in your faith, you got to continue in it. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So what do you need to do? It's all about faith. you got to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in what? It's who he said he was and what he came to do. You put your faith in Jesus that he is the son of God, that he is every claim he made about himself is absolutely true. And that what he came to do, he actually fulfilled that when he died on the cross, it wasn't just for, it wasn't for his own sins. It wasn't because of his own mistakes, his own shortcomings, his own failure. When he died on the cross, it was for you. It was for your sins. And when he rose up from the dead, it wasn't just for him. He was the firstborn among many. It was so that you can have eternal life as well. Faith in the Son of God. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, You'll be saved. What does that mean? It means that Jesus will come in and he will sit on the throne of your heart. He'll be king of your heart. The king of the universe will be king of your heart. And your purpose will flow from that. God's plans for you will just begin to flow out of that. Listen, in him, all striving cease. If you're here today and you feel like you've been living your life striving and reaching for something that's out there, Listen to me, you're living your life the wrong way. It's not out there somewhere, it's in here. 
And when he is in here, you just walk and walk into what he has for you. You walk into purpose. You walk into provision. Everything you need, he's got it for you.